Good morning, almost afternoon to everyone. We are continuing Pirkei Avos, and after we do Pirkei Avos, we will discuss a Rosh Hashanah idea. So, the end of the Mishnah 6 in chapter 1 talks about judging every person to the side of merit. In Hebrew, that's what have done. It's called Ha'adam Makhav Sufus. Judge every person to the side of merit. So if we look at the Mishnah in total, there are three ideas. Number one is make for yourself a teacher. Number two is acquire for yourself a friend. Number three is judge every person to the side of merit. I'm looking at pages 24, 25, and 26 in the Art Scroll. So obviously we need to ask ourselves the question, we can sort of get the connection between make for yourself a teacher and acquire for yourself a friend, but it seems to be not so much related. The third idea, which is judge every person favorably, that seems to be something extremely general, not related to a specific kind of relationship that you have with a person. And the first two ideas were to develop specific relationships, that of a student teacher and that of a friend. So I'd like to suggest as a possible answer to that question, that the thrust of this Mishnah is talking about the development of every human being. Every human being needs a mentor, someone from whom they learn and put on a pedestal and look to as a resource and a guide. And every person needs a friend because people develop and need these relationships to help them in their developmental process. Now, of course, there are other benefits. You have human connection, you don't have loneliness. But most importantly, I'm looking at these two relationships that the Mishnah is prescribing as relationships that are critical for a person's self-development the correct way. So for example, we have another teaching that we're gonna you know, get to that a wise person learns from all people. A way to really help a person learn is through having the right relationship with the teacher that they designate, as we mentioned, it's the responsibility on the student and that they invest in friendships so that they have people with whom to share their lives with, discuss who they are, and ultimately get a very important help in their own development. And then Anisha tells us everybody has a developmental process and our job is not to look at anybody negatively, but to, to look to everyone positively. Because despite the fact that people might fail or might do something wrong, you have to look at the person as a work in progress. And so aside from the fact that we shouldn't assume the negative, but assume the positive, I think part of what it's saying is we need to give people their mistakes as extenuating circumstances, just like we would grant ourselves the freedom, so to speak, to not think of ourselves as horrible people because of the mistakes that we made. So the concept of the side of merit, you know, judge a person to the side of merit is actually very much related to Rosh Hashanah, which we're about to begin in a couple of nights. Because what we are taught is that if a person has one more merit over sin, so then they've truly earned the ability to be signed in the book of the righteous. So the idea that there can be a lot of negative but it can be outweighed with one more positive, right? There's just a little bit more positive 
is also Hashem's way, in my humble opinion, of looking at us favorably. Because instead of judging us by all the negative things that we did, he's saying, you know what? Yeah, that person made mistakes, but ultimately he wants to define himself as a growing person because he has that extra positive, which really militates in favor of us, meaning the person and Hashem, identifying that person that has many sins as a righteous person. Right? So we're looking at those negatives that they are not defining him. So that's the way I'm trying to understand part of this idea of judging every person favorably. And it comes after these other relationships which help a person to develop so that we look at every person as a work in progress. Anybody want to make any comments on that? So there's a beautiful story that is brought down from the Talmud, uh, and it's in this uh, version of Pekiovus in the article on page 26, that tells us of an agricultural worker who spent three years working for a landowner. On the eve of Yom Kippur, he went to his employer to collect wages for the full three years, and the employer claimed to have no money. So the worker said, I'll take fruit. I have no fruit, said the employer. Let me have some of your land. And the landowner claimed that this was impossible uh, for whatever reason, uh, maybe it was in collateral, etc. And bottom line is, everything that he asked for an equivalent payment, he was given the same answer, I have nothing to give you. So he was brokenhearted and penniless, and the worker went home. And after the holidays, the landowner arrived at the home of his former employee and presented him not only with his wages, but with several like extra foods and delicacies as a treat for the worker's family. And he says to the to the to the worker, the landowner says to the worker, when I told you I had no money, what did you think? What were you thinking then? And he said, I assumed that you had invested in merchandise and so you were out of cash. I said, I had no animals. What did you think? Oh, I assumed that you had hired out your animals and they were on rent to other people. What about the claim that I had no fruit? He said, I, I had assumed that you didn't yet take the necessary tithes and therefore, I couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't benefit from those fruits because in order for anybody to have benefit, the produce needs to be tied properly. And what about your suspicion that I had no pillows or covers or anything else to give you? He said, I assumed you had consecrated your things to the temple treasury. Says the landowner, I swear to you that that is exactly the truth, just as you said. I pledged all my, my worldly goods to the temple in order that my son merit success in his studies. Just as you judge me favorably, so you may be judged in heaven in a favorable manner. So one of the things that's always fascinated me about this story is not only the straightforward message of judging people favorably, and that it could actually be true that people might actually be innocent of your wrongdoing, but is the fact that we have to ask ourselves the question, did the landowner do the correct thing in donating all of his possessions the temple, however he got them back, whatever happened later, knowing that he had a debt coming up, I don't think he did the right thing. I don't think that's, how is that possibly the right thing to do? We have a law in the Torah that says a person is not allowed to withhold wages from his worker. Here he had the money. Okay, I get it. He wanted his son to have success in Torah study, but is he allowed to put the debt that he has to the employee on the back burner because he wants to do this, you know, kind of extra credit mitzvah so that his son should merit success in Torah study? I would say no. 
So to me, that's a proof that judging a person favorably includes, even if what they're doing is wrong, you have to assume the best of the possible wrongdoings that they've done, right? So in other words, it could be that the end of the story is that the other person is actually doing something wrong, but give it the best possible light so that it's less wrong, less severe or drastic than it otherwise might seem to you. And that's a very hard thing to do. If we take the simple example where somebody says something not nice, this just happened uh, in front of me the other day, one of the students was a little frustrated by the other student. And he said in front of other people, he says, you talk a lot. And the truth is, I get it. He was a little frustrated, but he really didn't mean it as bad as it sounded. Ironically, because everybody knows the person who said it generally talks more than everybody else. <laughs> it was really a funny moment in that, in that sense. And so a couple of days later, I went over to him and I said to him, listen, I know you didn't really want to hurt his feelings, but I think, you know, you might want to apologize because I, I think he felt a little bad, even though I know that wasn't what you intended. And he accepted it very, very willingly. What I was telling him, he says, 100 percent, it's true. And I'm going to apologize to him. Now, I could have read that situation and gone over to him and say, you know, that was a terrible thing that you did. And, you know, look, uh, look at the pot calling the kettle black, you know, that whole thing. Um, and, and really try to lace into him, but it was completely unnecessary. And I actually really tried to see it from his point of view, why he was frustrated. And probably part of his frustration was because the, the other student took some of his airtime, you know, uh, in the class. But whatever the reason is, that's part of the message here, is whatever favorable coloring we can give a situation, even if at the end of the day, the person did do something not really correct, we're obligated to do that as well. And sometimes that's our situation. We have really good intentions, but we still make a mistake with our good intentions. And so then finally, uh, as a correlation to Rosh Hashanah, is we are taught, and it's an amazing concept uh, that my father really elaborates on, that Hashem treats us the way we treat other people, right? So you think about that. Really, maybe we had bad intentions, and what we did was actually more evil than, than we could be judged, right? Maybe, maybe, for example, in the case of the story that we read, the landowner didn't feel like paying the worker who was upset at him, and he didn't really want to pay him. He was looking for an excuse to get out of paying him, right? That could have been. But what we're taught is that because the worker, because the worker had the best of intentions, that's the way in judging the landowner, that's the way Hashem is going to judge the worker. Right? So for example, if this landowner had good intentions to someone else, so Hashem is not going to look at him and say, hey, maybe you were trying to punish your worker. Maybe you were trying to do something wrong. Hashem in court, right? On Rosh Hashanah, in the final court, despite the fact that Hashem knows the real intentions, the court case law is going to be with the presumed best intentions. That's a huge, huge chidush, right? That's a huge and, and a huge benefit. Because even if our intentions were actually worse, if we judge other people favorably, Hashem judges us according to what our favorable intentions could have been. It's kind of shocking. Because right? he knows the truth. doesn't matter. That's the way we treat other people. That's the way Hashem treats us. I just want to sh share... Um, Actually, you know what? I'll share that in the um, in, in the Devar Torah. Any questions or comments? So I'll, I'll make a uh, a comment, and um, I I really love this actually. Um, 
I think that this presumption of best intentions is critical to any positive human relationship, whether it be friends, whether it be family or business. I think that it is uh, absolutely critical to uh, having a positive human relationship. And at any time that, whether it be in some sort of study group or business setting, laying the groundwork for uh, behaviors and, and, and things that are expected of others within the group. When I'm, when I have the opportunity, this is always like the first thing that I give is like, look, assume the best of intentions, even when the language is, is harsh, even when the language is bad, assume that that person just couldn't formulate it better. And so, it, but assume the best of intentions that they're doing it for growth. They're doing it because they care and we'll have a much more productive uh, interaction, much more productive. Very hard to do, but that's amazing that that's, uh, that's your practice. Are you able to accomplish that at home? I find myself actually needing to remind one of my children of that on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. uh, not so much for me, but maybe for their sibling that, mm -hmm. you know, reminding them yeah. we're all on the same team. We all love one another, but uh, I think we do. I think we do at home. Um, certainly between me and Leah, uh, but the, the kids sometimes need the reminder of it that no, they didn't hit you in the head with the toy on purpose. They just were throwing the toy around and it hit you in the head. Yeah. Yep, that's amazing to accomplish that. Anybody else or do we move on? Okay, we'll move on. So we'll go to the next Mishnah. And we're going to also connect the two Mishnahs a little bit. So this is chapter one, Mishnah number seven, Nitai Ha'arbeli Omer. This is another sage. He says, Nitai says, Harcheik Mishachin Ra, distance yourself from a bad neighbor. And do not associate with a wicked person. And do not despair of retribution. So what does it mean not to despair of retribution? A person shouldn't say, oh, there goes that guy again getting away with murder. Nothing bad ever happens to him. Don't think that people are not going to get their just desserts. The just desserts will happen. It may not look like it. You may not see it. But those things will happen or do happen. And, you know, God is always involved. And there's no such thing as a person not reaping the rewards of his actions. So we have the theme of this Mishnah being distancing oneself from evil and not having the illusion that evil genuinely succeeds in the end. And therefore, why shouldn't I, quote unquote, join him because I couldn't beat him? Right? If you can't beat him, join him. That's a famous expression. This mission is specifically coming to counteract that thought. No, because whatever looks like success, if its root is evil, it ultimately cannot truly be success. And so we need to distance ourselves from a bad neighbor, not coming 
um, not associate with a wicked person and not to give up from the idea that wicked ultimately does not prosper. That's the truth. Wickedness will reap its punishment. So I think a couple of points I would like to focus on here is that this idea of distancing oneself from a bad neighbor or not associating with a wicked person obviously needs understanding. For example, we've spoken about recently in a couple of different classes that one of the obligations of completely righteous people is strengthen is to strengthen people that are wicked. Right? You have to you have to do everything that you can your at, at your disposal and within your ability to help people that are not adhering to the ways of righteousness and the Torah. That's, that's a responsibility that we have so much so that we learned, according to Nachmanides, if a completely righteous person looks away and does not do that, he's cursed. The Torah curses that person. He's Even though he's completely righteous, observes all the Torah, but if he does not help wicked people, so then he's cursed. And this is now going to you know catapult us into a larger conversation for a moment, and something that I, I speak about with the yeshiva students regularly, people tend to validate their opinions with external sources of information, right? So people look for what they want to see, right? So people look for certain kinds of news to validate their opinion. People look for, um, you know, whether it's uh, a political party or, you know, association to validate what they want it to say. There are not many people that are actually exploring for what is true and how should I form my opinion based on facts? Unfortunately, similar things to that happen in the Torah. People very often will look at the Torah to find what they want it to say. So for those people who want to believe that in order for a person to be a correct religious Jew, we must, quote unquote, live in you know, certain cities that are completely cloistered and cut off from the rest of the world because we're not allowed to associate with a wicked person and maybe a wicked person is any person who owns a smartphone or you know whatever then we can look at this mission and say hey look it says distance oneself from a bad neighbor and don't associate with wicked people yeah we gotta we gotta shut ourselves down we have to get away and if you read many commentaries yeah sure it can look like that's what it's saying and rabbini yona specifically sees this as advice to those looking for a place to live, to inquire about the neighbors, because that's a critical, um, it's as important as knowing about the living conditions. That's true. But what I would like to suggest and point out is how do we have this balance then? That we're supposed to help these people, we're supposed to do something for them, but we're never supposed to see them in our entire lives? Like, how does that work? So I suggest a very simple resolution. We need to know from where we are going to take our direction and our influence and who's going to be able to pressure us into not being who we really ought to be. So I look at this Mishnah and I say, we have to make sure that our environment, which encourages us to be who we are, should not be an environment where we will feel susceptible to be the wrong person not who we're supposed to be. So therefore, I think what the mission is saying, and this is another way to look at these exact words, is if you have a wicked neighbor, instead of feeling open to them and being willing to be influenced by them, 
distance yourself, meaning don't give them the feeling that you have a relationship by which you are looking to learn from them or to absorb from them. Make it clear that the relationship is formal, not run away forever, not be far, far away so that it's out of sight and out of mind. And the same thing when it says for wicked people in general, but my, part of my proof is that it says to distance yourself from the neighbor, not from the neighborhood, right? So that means you're still living in the neighborhood. He's still your neighbor, but you create a distance. You give a feeling that this is not, you are not the person from whom I'm going to stay, take my example. And the same thing when it comes to not associating with the wicked. The Hebrew word is associate. But actually, the, no, sorry, the English translation is associate, but the Hebrew word is chaver, which means connect, friend. Don't be friendly to the point of building connection with the wicked person because of their wickedness. Obviously, if you're trying to mentor them, if you're trying to help them, if you're trying to give them a different example, that's a whole different relationship. But if you're connecting to them and you're trying to not only associate, but to be integrated with them, that's a terrible thing. That can't be. And then the Mishnah concludes with the idea of, you know, remember that evil really does not prosper. And despite the fact that the wicked neighbor or the wicked people might look like they have everything that they need in this world and, you know, the easy life or whatever, don't think that by connecting with them, that's what's going to happen. And their success is ultimately not going to be enduring. So now if we connect this Mishnah with the last Mishnah, the first Mishnah was telling you how to build your proper social ecosystem with a teacher, with a friend, and with really looking at people to the best possible light that you can. This Mishnah is saying when you're confronted with an ecosystem or elements, I should say, in the ecosystem of your social group that could be harmful to you, make sure that you create separation so that you don't become the subject of their influence because at the end of the day, you have to know all this is really for your benefit because what the wicked people do is not ultimately going to succeed. Okay, questions or comments? Nobody yet? Okay, so I just wanted to use this as an example of how we really need to look at the Torah. Here, we explained the Mishnah and at from the outset, you could think it means one thing, right? Like make sure to move to a very, you know, sheltered, cloistered city away from, let's say, anybody who doesn't keep Shabbos or, you know, any any non-Jews, right? It could be anything. It could be very, very determined to live a very secluded life. But the other way to read the mission is actually, no, you're supposed to live among the normal folks, so to speak, even wicked people, but just be very careful that you don't build relationships with them so that the influence is happening the wrong way. Instead of you influencing them for the better, they're influencing you for the negative. And so that comes up time and again in our studies. We have to really be discerning what are the rabbis really saying and not just assume it means what we might want it to mean. Okay, if there are no questions or comments, we'll move along to the Devar Torah. Okay, so we're gonna to go to one eight next time. I'm going to press stop here.